Before we read the sermon text, Luke 20, 41 to 47, I'd like to get some of the background, the literary background that is referred to in this passage by turning now to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This too, according to the psalm title, is a psalm of David. And David writes by the Holy Spirit, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And with this psalm in mind, will you turn now to Luke chapter 20? And verse 41. The background is Jesus is in the temple teaching the final week before the cross. He has been engaged in uh, controversies with Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Verse 41, then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word and our understanding of it. And I want to ask you today, just how remarkable a man was our Lord Jesus Christ? What exactly was it that set him so completely apart from other men? 
either men of his own generation or any man since. What was it that set him so completely apart? Was it that he had this surpassing natural gift for teaching? Or was it his uncanny ability to heal the desperately sick and help the disabled? Or did his uniqueness among men lie in the uncommon capacity he had for loving people, even loving complete strangers, even loving those who were busily trying to kill him? Jesus certainly was all these things. He was an extraordinary teacher, a great physician, and he was a man who, whose heart for the well-being of needy sinners can't be measured or plumbed for depth. But you and I, in the course of our lives, have known some pretty extraordinary teachers, haven't we? I hope you have, along life's way. And not only trained doctors, but others as well, sometimes unschooled laymen who seem instinctively to know what's going on with us medically and what to do to make us feel better. And as for his capacity to love, even to love unconditionally, isn't that the everyday work of any good mother? Jesus excelled in all these things and much more besides, but they are not what made him unique. What made our Lord Jesus Christ absolutely unique among men down through the ages is the secret of the riddle that we find in verses 41 to 44. He posed the question to the scribes, the scholars there in the temple, right after they and all his other adversaries had just tossed in the towel. They'd given up testing him with questions because testing him with questions wasn't getting them anywhere, at least not anywhere they wanted to go, because never a man spoke as this man in a public debate either. Jesus very politely but very decisively shut the mouths of his opponents. The games aren't won by a good defense, are they? Games are won by gaining yardage, by actually moving the ball forward. And the transformation of lives from darkness to light, from ignorance to to understanding, from not caring to caring deeply about the kingdom of God and the things of God, this transformation begins with addressing the mind. Moving it forward, forcing us to think. The 20th chapter of Luke's Gospel concludes with two short paragraphs that we'll consider together today. We'll consider them together, not only because they're short, but because there's a thought connection between them, a logical connection that we might otherwise miss. I want us to consider today 
the absolute uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ among men. The absolute uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ among men. That's the big picture. The one-of-a-kind person our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we'll look at this, first of all, through the lens of the inspired witness of the scriptures, and then from the perspective of his warning against the scribes, the witness of the scriptures and his warning against the scribes. Now you may recall that during the evening of that day of our Lord's resurrection, he appeared and told his marveling disciples, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Dear ones, listen carefully. Every part of the Hebrew scriptures speaks of the Messiah. The Christ. They all speak of his coming in the fullness of time to redeem his people. The law does, the prophets do, and the writings as well. Writings of which the very centerpiece and crown jewel is the book of Psalms. So clearly does the book of Psalms place God's Messiah before us that the Apostle Paul actually singles it out, singles out the book of Psalms from all the other Old Testament books when in the third chapter of his letter to the Colossians and the 16th verse, he refers to the Psalter as the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, he says, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It may be a minor point, and I don't want to belabor it unnecessarily, but let me remind you that the Psalter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was the hymnal that Jesus Christ and his apostles used. It was the hymnal of the temple, the hymnal of the synagogues. Now there is certainly plenty of lyrical language all through the New Testament. There is a lot to sing about. But we don't find any indication in the scriptures that the New Testament church, in their public worship, sang anything other than the Psalms of the Bible. Now, someone always asks at this point, well, what about these hymns and spiritual songs? Paul mentions them. That's for another sermon, but very briefly, Greek grammar requires that the adjective pneumatikos, spiritual or spirit-given, pneumatikos, apply to all three plural pronouns listed immediately before it. That adjective modifies everything. So the psalms, hymns, and songs that Paul mentions were all inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
And where do we find these psalms, hymns, and songs? Those very same three words appear in the various titles to the book of Psalms in the Greek or Septuagint version of the Bible that was in common use at the time. So Paul was thinking of the Old Testament book of Psalms in its comprehensive fullness as the Spirit-inspired Word of Christ. And because it was God-breathed, therefore it was useful and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The Psalms are all about the coming Christ. All about him in his majestic reign as the Eternal One, serving the Holy God and the needy people of, the, of God as mediatorial king. The Psalms are all about him in his incarnation as a man. His humiliation. The terrible opposition he faced in the discharge of his calling as the Messiah. They're all about his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, and the calling of all nations to serve him as the people of the God of Abraham. It's all there in the book of Psalms. Woven into the Psalms as well is the ontological mystery of his being. And I promise you, friends, I promise you that is the last time you will ever hear me use that word ontological in this or any sermon. But what I'm saying is that the Psalms drop hints here and there as to the essential nature of the Christ. Who he is considered even a part from his redemptive work, if a distinction between the person and his work were even possible. Here and there, the Psalms suggest to us something of his unique, essential nature. And the riddle that Jesus poses to the scribes here in our sermon text directs our attention to one of those places. It is to Psalm 110. He said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? You see the problem, don't you? Biblically speaking, a son is never his father's superior. Never. Never his father's lord. The fifth commandment doesn't direct fathers and mothers to honor their children. Quite the reverse. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor your parents because they're in a place of God-given authority over you. A son cannot be his father's Lord. Now it's so universally accepted in Judaism that the Messiah when he comes will be King David's son. 
that is his descendant, that Jesus didn't even need to ascribe that view to anyone in particular. He simply says, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Who says so? Everyone says so. Everyone says that the Christ is David's son. Everyone who knows his Bible, everyone who's ever read 2 Samuel chapter 7, everyone who's ever sung Psalm 72, Psalm 89, or considered any of the host of biblical passages that seal and confirm God's covenant promises to David. So this future descendant of David, David himself, in the 110th Psalm, calls his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can this be? Is the Christ David's son or is he David's Lord? It's a conundrum. It's a riddle. Both are true. Both are true. But how can they be made to fit together? No one's able to answer him in the temple that day. The scholars of the day couldn't answer it. In fact, that riddle that he posed to them would go unanswered until after Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. Into heaven. Where hidden from earthly sight, yet beheld by angels and the saints in glory, his enthronement, Jesus' enthronement and investiture as mediatorial king, was celebrated. Just as Daniel foresaw in his seventh chapter, Centuries earlier, David writes in chapter 7, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel writes in chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. When after the resurrection, the now victorious Lord Jesus Christ ascended the throne of heaven, he was not like some wide-eyed tourist down at the Alamo. He wasn't some out-of-town stranger who had never seen the hallowed halls of heaven before. Jesus knows this place, heaven. This is where he came from. He is a battle-scarred but conquering king, coming home at last when he ascended into heaven. He's a king coming home. Mission accomplished. The difference between his leaving heaven 
and his return again at his ascension is this. About 33 years earlier, he had left the throne and gone out from this place as the eternal son of God. And the memory of heaven and the memory of his leaving it, his descending, his condescending to earth, the memory of it resonates throughout his high priestly prayer of John 17, doesn't it? We're speaking of his heaven and his return to the glory that I had with you before the world was. And the Apostle Paul also makes reference to the Lord's departure from heaven as well in Philippians 2. So, in the days when Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire, our Lord Jesus left heaven being by nature the eternal Son of God. The difference is that 33 years later, he's returning again to the throne of heaven and being presented to the Father, the Ancient of Days, as the victorious Son of Man. He is actually bringing with him into heaven the pristine, unsullied human nature with which he was clothed at his incarnation. A human nature now tested, tried, and true. Dear ones, listen carefully. Heaven had never seen such a man before. World without end. God the Son is David's Lord, and ours too. Then, from the historical moment of his incarnation in the womb of Mary, he also came to be David's son. Jesus Christ is therefore the one and only God-man. He is the God-man. The man possessed not of one nature, but of two. And therein lies his absolute uniqueness among the sons of men. He is fully God. And he is fully man. Now this, of course, is going to make your head explode. It does, to contemplate it. How can this be? One person with two distinctly different natures. Well, the wheels in the heads of many good men spun furiously over this matter for generations before the Council of Chalcedon, informed by the Scripture and led by the Holy Spirit, in the year 451 A.D., they formulated this definition of the person of Jesus Christ. It's a fairly brief definition, but it's thorough. Let me read it to you in its fullness. This is what they decided. Godly men at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. This is what they said. Following then the Holy Fathers, 
we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This selfsame one is perfect, both in deity and also in humanness. This selfsame one is also truly God and truly man with a rational soul and body. He is of the same being with the Father as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same being as we ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us in all respects, sin only accepted. Before the ages he was begotten of the Father in respect of his deity, and now in these last days for us and on behalf of our salvation, the selfsame one was born of Mary the Virgin, who is God-bearer in respect of his humanness. We also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord only begotten in two natures. Without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function, the distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person and in one essence. They are not divided or cut into two persons but are together the one and only and only begotten word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified. Thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Thus the symbol of the fathers, and they're referring there to the Nicene Creed. Thus the symbol of the fathers has handed down to us. Friends, there is no one like him. There is no one like him. According to his divine nature, he's David's Lord. Always has been, always will be. According to his human nature, he's David's lineal descendant, his son. Beloved, the Christian is one. Man or woman, boy or girl, He's someone who deals in very rare and precious things. We deal in pearls of great price. And Christology, the biblical doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, is by far the rarest of jewels in the whole treasury of God's kingdom. He simply has no equal. Not in heaven and not on earth. And you'll spend your whole life trying in vain to measure the height and the depth and the breadth of his majestic person. Just his person, let alone the breathtaking work of grace to which he applied himself. To which he applies himself even today from heaven as he intercedes for us before the Father. He alone being then this glorious son of men, victor over sin and death. Let us beware as a plague. Let us beware as a plague the prosaic, 
humdrum, claptrap religion of the scribes. The pompous, self-seeking, earthbound traditions of men. Any men. The religions of any men. Men who prefer and seek such privileges and emoluments as Jesus never sought. Men who value the things that Jesus disdains and disdain the things and people he values. We very briefly considered today the absolute uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. I urge you to place in the scales of your sober judgment the unsurpassed glory and majesty of our ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Weigh his boundless worth against the parasitic, self-seeking religions of men. And hear him. Listen to him. Answer his call who tells us in the sixth chapter of John. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me. I lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up at the last day.